Hey, it's Melvin, one of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you're a longtime listener, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Reviews are the lifeblood of the podcast world, so if you want to help us out, it'll take only a moment of your time. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name's Melvin, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a Christian podcast service that encourages and equips Christians to engage and reform the culture of cinema. In this episode, I'm joined by Chris Starin of The Truce Podcast, and we're here to talk about Thomas Kael's Hamilton. This movie was chosen by the lovely patrons who support Cinematic Doctrine with a small monthly donation. For as little as $3, you too can have the opportunity to vote for a movie we discuss at the end of each month by heading over to Cinematic Doctrine's Patreon. A link will be available in the show notes. Chris Darren is the creator of Truce, the award-winning Christian podcast that looks at history to deep dive into the Christian church. You're going to hear so much more about him and his work when we finally get through this introduction, and all of it is such good stuff. But my goodness, after hearing his podcast, I just had to have him on the show. In fact, the latest episodes of Truce, as of this recording, have been on the Founding Fathers and other important aspects of American history, so it only made sense to have him join me for this episode on Hamilton. For starters, Chris shares his absolute love for Hamilton, and how he's been a huge fan since it toured. We also dig into its questions on legacy, pride, and the unique benefit of having a story that spans many years. Then we run headfirst into some fascinating trivia I collected for this episode, which sparks some great conversations on cut content and cultural impact. Afterward, Chris shares some historical inaccuracies that give insight into the way Lin-Manuel Miranda refined the flow of the play. And finally, I ask Chris what he thinks about the criticism helmed against Hamilton, for its, someone ironically titled, whitewashing of the Found Fathers. But you know how we do. Let's give y'all a quick synopsis on Hamilton, some content awareness, and get that call to action out of the way before we get into the episode. Hamilton, the award-winning musical, chronicles the heroic and tragic history of Alexander Hamilton, a founding father and the first secretary of the Treasury for the United States of America. From orphaned child to one of the most powerful people in the colonies, Alexander Hamilton repeatedly finds himself at what will soon be considered key points in U.S. history, and he's not throwing away his shot. In Breaking New Ground, Hamilton features a diverse cast performing typically white roles, with music that varies across popular modern genres such as hip-hop, R&B, jazz, and a little bit of British invasion. It's a hopeful look at history from the lens of the 2010s, and one that's found new life in its recent digital release via Disney+. Hamilton is rated PG-13 for language and some suggestive material. Disney has censored all of the uses of the F-word that are in the original play, but you can still figure out where they're placed at times because, well, a couple of the songs... It's just really obvious that they were there, and can be a little distracting since some characters are just yelling into the air but you don't hear them. So it's distracting, but also kind of funny at the same time. But basically, there's language throughout the play, across a variety of words that may be offensive to some. Also, there's some slanderous speech that's targeted at other characters. The suggestive material is likely regarding a song that details a solicitous act between characters. The lyrics are suggestive, but in all honesty, are nowhere near as graphic as some of the written depictions of salaciousness in the Old Testament. In other words, if you're currently reading through the Old Testament like I am, 
the lyrics won't be very bothersome because you've just recently read some crazy stuff. However, during a dance, there is a little bit of what I guess I'll describe as touchy-feely. Although it's neither aggressive, nor is it disrespectful to the boundaries between performers or really audience viewers. That said, it still happens. And there's a couple other songs that have suggestive lyrics. Also, it totally makes sense that the certificate doesn't mention this, but the musical does take place during colonial America, so there's some war violence that's depicted on stage. Now, before we head into our Hamilton discussion, I wanted to share real quick that if you've come to enjoy Cinematic Doctrine, consider leaving a review for the podcast on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. Unlike YouTube or Reddit, there isn't really a way to let us know how we're doing with a thumbs up or thumbs down, so the best way is to leave your thoughts on the podcast by writing a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever you listen. Apart from that, Cinematic Doctrine also has a Patreon. For those who don't know, Patreon is a website for independent content creators to raise support for their work. By creating an account on Patreon, you can select a content creator you like and support them with a monthly donation. If you enjoy Cinematic Doctrine and would like to support the show, consider donating, as it helps cover the cost of producing the podcast. And as a bonus, if you support Cinematic Doctrine for as little as $3 a month, you're opted into a once-a-month movie poll where you decide a movie we discuss in the podcast. You also gain access to the Syndoc Pre-Show, a Patreon-exclusive podcast series where my co-host Daniel and I casually talk movies, Christianity, and life itself. There are other unique benefits that come with supporting the podcast, so be sure to check them out at patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine. And be sure to check out Chris Theron's podcast, Truce, the award-winning Christian podcast that looks at history to deep dive into the Christian church. Using interviews with experts, music, games, and recipes, Truce uncovers the things that glom onto the Christian church so that we can protect our witness to the world. It's all about how we got here and how we can do better. Without further ado, here's our thoughts on Hamilton. Chris Starin of The Truce Podcast. What's going on, man? Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am excited about this topic and for the chance to be on the show. I'm incredibly excited, too, because I went into Hamilton completely blind, both, well, well somewhat historically, but yeah. like music, everything about it. I just knew that it was popular years ago and now is on Disney+. Plus. That's all I knew. You you hadn't seen it or heard the, the soundtrack? No, nothing. I know oh! the soundtrack's been out forever, but like yeah. this was my first time getting through it. Oh, my goodness. What a treat to go back to those early days of hearing it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a super fan. Maybe I shouldn't say that early on, but I'm a, a big fan of the show uh, of, of Hamilton. And um, and it, it's always a surprise to me when people don't know it. So it's like, oh, I want to tell you all these things. And I guess that's what we're going to talk about today. I love it. I, lo I love that we're basically now having someone who is well-versed in Hamilton and then me who knows nothing <laughs> and can now learn everything. I love it. Oh, you've it. done so a bunch of research. Yeah, I think you know a lot now. I'd I'd hope it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Instead yeah. of like a poser, like someone who's just like, yeah, I skateboard, but then only just wear <laughs> skateboard clothes. Sure. But like, <laughs> but yeah, before we get started, tell us about like what you do, your podcast, all that jazz. Right. Yes. Yeah. So my name is Chris. I am the host of the Truce podcast. And the show is trying to look inside the Christian church at the things that have glommed onto Christianity, like pyramid schemes, political campaigns, um, big business. Uh, how, how did Christianity get tied to capitalism? And uh, we have a lot of fun doing it, uh, get interesting guests, and uh, I invent games and interesting ways to discuss things, um, all in an effort to preserve the Christian witness and see how these things impact our witness to the world. 
So that that's the the main project I'm working on now. I used to make Christian films, uh, bringing out Bobby in between the walls, and I wrote a novel, Cradle Robber, which is a uh, Christian time travel novel. Now I'm way more interested in your novel. <laughs> that, that, I know you had said it, and I was like, "Well, I definitely don't have time to read that before we get together." Right. But, yeah, but uh-huh. I, but now I'm like, that sounds awesome. Why? Can you tell us a little more about that? I was really interested in sort of that anger that we Christians can get into. That we would often write it off as righteous anger, but as you're helping out with people more and more, especially if it's you're working with poor people or people with mental disabilities, you can get really frustrated and really angry and you just want to change the world and force it to look like you want it to be. Um, so this it's a story of a man who invents a time machine basically so he can go back and uh, try to force the world to act like he wants it to be. And of course he ends up becoming what he doesn't like. Um, and so uh, it's an, an interesting book. Uh, you don't see a lot of anti-heroes in Christian novels, um, but uh, I went for it. <laughs> um, and it does have a touch of romance in it as well, for those who like romance. But ultimately, that book is kind of sort of a, a perfect precursor to my show. Um, and it's like uh, talking about a specific issue. Um, and in, in the case of the book, it's uh, abortion. Um, and our anger over that issue and how that ultimately impairs our witness if we let that anger control us um, instead of trying to love on people uh, the way Christ would love on them. So it's a, yeah, go for it. You can find it on um, any ebook platform um, and it's only four bucks right now. I'm going to have to read that because I, I absolutely it. love that. And I think like even um, you mentioning just the really interesting reality of there not being many anti-hero narratives in Christian literature. Right. But then like you go and read the Old Testament and oh, pretty much everybody's a quote unquote anti-hero at some yeah. point. We had uh, recently talked about Samson, the, the Pure Flix film, but mostly just talked about the biblical story because that's where the wealth of content is. And like, that's an anti-hero story. Right, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. He's, he is still in the book of Hebrews as a faithful servant to God. And you're like, but I just read his story. How? But that's right. what's so cool about it. So yeah, oh. that's awesome. What a challenge, but what a good yeah. challenge. I'm sure that was a very rewarding book to write. You know, it was it was difficult um, because the, the Christian um, fiction market is mostly aimed at women. Uh, so I actually had uh, an agent talk to me and said, I won't pick you up unless you write under a woman's name. Uh, because uh, the, the the market is so focused on women that yeah. it, it, it doesn't yeah. know what to do with men. Um, and, and so a wow. book that was about a man who was struggling with anger didn't really fit into the traditional publishing mold um, because it's very much uh, about uh, romance and Amish romance right now um, and has been for quite a while, actually. And if you don't fit that mold, they don't know what to do with you. Uh, so <laughs> it can be it can be a struggle to try to push boundaries and make new things. I mean, here we are. We're talking about Hamilton today. About uh, uh, who would have thought that a musical about the the first Secretary of the Treasury in the United States would be a, a worldwide phenomenon and done in hip hop? I mean, who would think? But you know, uh, now it seems like a totally obvious thing. Um, but a few years ago, everybody would have thought you were crazy to be like, oh, I love this musical about the Treasury <laughs> Secretary. You know? yeah, uh, yeah. Somebody somebody has to break those boundaries. Um, and the Christian publishing world is really afraid of of that. Um, but who knows? Someday, maybe, maybe they'll innovate. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. I think it's, I was just thinking like a brief thought right now that like you had, you had just kind of introduced yourself and, and gone into things and mentioned that you did two movies, but then I'm over here like book. Let's talk about your book on <laughs> my movie podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Yeah. Sorry. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> while we're, fine. while we're talking about a musical on our movie podcast, even. Yeah. So it's like, we're just, we're breaking the rules. We're in theme. We're breaking totally the rules. Yeah. It's all creative <laughs> stuff. Yeah. My twin brother and I made two feature length Christian films, uh, very low budget. Cause we didn't have much money. Um, and right at the tail end, end of DVDs. Um, so when it was really, really hard to make money back, it's even worse now. But um, mm. uh, so you can actually, speaking of PureFlix, you can see our film Bringing Out Bobby on PureFlix right now. Uh, it's, it's part of that oh, wow. subscription. So uh, go go watch it and uh, leave us a good comment. Um, there you go. Be, be nice. We didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was going to say, we were also trying to push boundaries there with um, having a lead character in a Christian film who was a goth kid. Um, and who was very likable and funny and smart, oh, I um, love that. a little awkward. So, and it's a comedy, uh, which, uh, you know, some people don't think belongs in the Christian sphere. Um, but I, I feel like, uh, is it just a fantastic way? Comedy has this ability to, con to convey very deep truths that you can't do in a drama without feeling heavy handed, but in a Absolutely. comedy, you can get away with a lot more stuff and really you can get very deep in a comedy. So absolutely. Um, we briefly mentioned, I think in a Syndoc pre-show. So Patreon supporters, you probably have heard this already, but in the Syndoc pre-show, we were talking about different preaching styles. And one of them was like, some preachers don't think comedy should be at the pulpit, but then right. it's like, if you're reading through Esther, which is a really challenging book. Yes. But it's also kind of a dark, satire and it has a lot of dark comedy to it and so yeah it, right it, it's it's amazing how scripture has all of these things in it that we right now would say would break the mold for christian literature or christian storytelling and then like if you go and read the bible you're like man they broke these rules years ago of course <laughs> like they, yeah like you said like anti-heroes there's a lot of murder in the bible there's incest there's yeah. you know it's crazy it, it really is a fascinating book I, I if you haven't read the bible for yourself i mean it's the bestseller of all time i don't need to tell you to read the bible but read yes, the bible yes. yeah yeah it's it is it is a amazingly accurate and important to everything that we do in our life. Wouldn't you agree, really Chris? Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Even to the point of like uh, our Christian market right now is so focused on positivity, um, and that if you believe in God, life is going to be easy for you. And if you read the Bible, there is nobody in the Bible who had an easy life. Yeah, I'm going through. I'm going through Isaiah. I call them Ijled because that's how I would remember the order when I would do a Bible test. But okay. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, oh, yeah, yeah. Ezekiel, Daniel. And like, it's just nonstop misery. <laughs> it it is. keeps going. But there's this constant hope running through it despite right. the misery. And I think channeling that is so much in tune with the Christian life. Um, so much. Because it is, it is, it's a, this is a deeply hopeless feels hopeless world, especially right now, as we're recording. Yeah. Um, we don't need to repeat why the time currently is because probably the last several episodes of our podcast, we've mentioned it at least once, but the irony of how hopeless it can feel is that in Christ, there is so much immense hope. And, right. and so I think if you're losing that aspect of the, I don't know what the term is. I, I guess you could say ambivalence, this happy, sad, that is mm -hmm. the Christian life right now. Yeah. Then like you really don't get to experience all of it. But man, now I'm like, we need to have another podcast where you and I can just talk. 
like we're at gonna have length our own about- show. <laughs> yeah, oh my just, goodness! Did I just, just like so nudge much. out your co-host? What is going? On? <laughs> Sorry, Dan. Bye. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> Oops. Uh, oh man. But before we end up running a spin-off podcast, of course. we really need to get into Hamilton because there is so yes. much good oh stuff here. Yes. So much good stuff. So let's let's start with you, Chris. Why why do you love Hamilton? And I'm guessing you rewatched it recently or have rewatched yes. it several times since it was put on D Plus. Yes. What are you feeling about Hamilton? I um I've seen it. I saw uh, the traveling show in Salt Lake City, uh, yeah, like on stage. Um, and then I saw the Disney Plus version and I've I've seen it uh, one and a half times now. Um, And I know the music backwards and forwards. Um, And I I think what I I love about Hamilton, there's so many things I love about it. Obviously the, there's so much great singing in it. Um, I love the lighting. I used to, I used to make films and my, my brother and I were very uh, cinematographically conscious about everything we did. Um, And you see just such deliberate care in the way that they coordinated the 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 dancing and the lighting together um it's just such a marvel um you know one of the great tools of cinema is that you can often use the camera to tell people this is where you can look but also but on broadway or on stage there's no camera you've got that whole big space that you have to be like okay we got to look in this back right corner you know and so through the lighting and through the the um the direction of the actors and the choreography, they draw your eye just like a camera lens over and over and over again. Um, and it, to me, it's just a beautiful thing to behold. Um, and uh, of course the music is fun. Um, and, uh, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of really good messages in there about keeping your head up and working hard and, uh, and uh, you know, don't get into duels. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Which you know, it seemed like Hamilton just could not get. Uh, but uh, it, it it really is um, an, an interesting mix of different things that you would not think would work, um, and uh, and pushed a lot of boundaries. Um, uh, like even hip hop in musicals, it would be like. Um, and I think you're going to get into this later, but you think about like back in the eighties when the rock musical began. Um, right. And right. Uh, it was kind of an innovation. You like a lot of the, the um, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals uh, like Jesus Christ Superstar or something. It's got an electric guitar in it. You know, who would, yeah. who would think that would work? Um, it was an innovation and we're kind of seeing that switching over in, in musicals now, uh, which I think is really exciting because some of the musicals that came out in the nineties and, and two thousands, early two thousands was like, they're all the same. So I think Hamilton right. came in this really great time, uh, where it could just mix things up a little bit. So anyway, that's, that's, I'm going to stop there. That's good enough for a soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think the messages and themes are really great at kind yeah. of painting the death of works righteousness. Because yeah. so much of Hamilton's character, at, and and this is talking strictly about the play, because I, I really don't know how historically accurate it is. I, I have some vague understandings, but at least yeah. as the play itself, it really paints the 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 deceptively dangerous belief that you are constantly having to best yourself and yeah. others too. Because like Hamilton is constantly putting himself in a position where he's 
not getting not giving away his shot basically he's right. not he's not going to miss the opportunity to do something more or better or to build up his his legacy because the whole thing is very much like that i i really loved that i think it's a great tragedy i think it's a great yes. american tragedy like his, the history of america and thinking of even even thinking of kind of americana rhetoric where it's this I mean, America has a very works righteousness ideal. I mean, the yeah. the American dream is about building yourself up and, and all that stuff. In fact, this is even more why I'm so glad you're on kind of in the midst of, of what you're covering with Truth Podcast, because you're covering America, America's sins. And then you're yeah. also covering <laughs> how America has been kind of intertwined with christianity and how yeah. christians have to deal with that <laughs> in, right. in some ways thinking about this story as sort of a um, historically american tragedy of the 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 dangers of works righteousness and then ultimately this big call of like who's going to tell your story right like and and we're going to definitely dig into this one way further in the episode but how people are interpreting his story because mm -hmm. some people are saying like this is true evidence of the failures of the american system and you can predict the the ultimate failure of the american experiment based on the, the founding fathers and, and their failures and then the other side is the who's going to tell your story and the positive legacy that extends from it. It's all very fascinating to me. And yeah. what I loved about the play is that as it's developing, you're beginning to see more and more about their history and about like, like it has one of the qualities that I think is paramount to great narratives and literature. And that's basically instead of spanning your story across a day or a couple of days, it spans across a couple of years. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and so you start with Hamilton as he's kind of a nobody getting somewhere to, he's got several kids, plenty of sins in his closet, uh, plenty of legacy things and characters and figures that he's been with. I mean, that's why the, the rivalry between him and Aaron Burr is so powerful in the play is because you've seen that rivalry from the start. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's interesting that the, they, he, Aaron Burr is not a typical bad guy. Like you don't see him like, you know, contemplating bringing down evil into the world or something, you know, he, he's just a guy who's jealous in the show right. and we've right. all been jealous. You know, we've all seen somebody succeed when, you know, we feel like we should have been succeeding. So you get that relatability in there as well uh, that, you know, we, we all kind of want to be the Hamilton, but many of us find ourselves as the Burr. One of the, one of the funniest reviews that I actually had, uh, perused about this. So I, I use a website called Letterbox to log on my movies and I really enjoy reading thoughts from the community. And one of them was just a funny little quip that was it's funny to have Aaron Burr be the main character and yet the play is called Hamilton. Because <laughs> yeah. so much of I would think so much of um the emotional weight is built by the character of Aaron Burr. Yeah. And how they're both the same people just very different it's like two yeah. sides of a coin we're like yeah there's heads and tails but mostly we just talk about what's on the heads of the coin yeah even though there's a tails you kind of see that there are other times in broadway history where you see that like evita um the the mm -hmm. the narrator is che guevara who opposed 
uh, Evita, um, Ava Perone. Um, and he is the one who is narrating the whole show. He's the backbone of the show in the same way that Aaron Burr is the backbone of Hamilton. Um, so that, right. yeah, there's sort of a, I guess there's precedent for that kind of thing, but it does make it interesting to know. I guess I think most of us know that Aaron Burr ends up shooting Hamilton at the end. Um, it, it adds that really interesting kind of tension of like, why is this guy singing about him? Um, you know, when they're supposed to be enemies, um, and sometimes right. even praising him. Yeah. And part of that, who's going to tell your legacy is on the back of the individual. I mean, that's the, yeah. the last thing he sings, I think in that one particular song is that like, now he has to carry that weight. Right. And that's part of part of people's legacy is having to carry the sins you've committed to other people it's true <laughs> and, yeah and that's a that's a rippling effect because that extend that extends outward i mean would would eliza go on to building a uh, an orphanage if if hamilton was around and that's part of the legacy of hamilton but that's also part of the legacy connected to Aaron Burr affecting Hamilton in a very fatal fashion. Yeah, I'm. It's fascinating because yeah. we we don't know. Most of us don't know Aaron Burr from anything but having shot Hamilton. Uh, we don't right. know about his accomplishments. We don't know about his attempts to take over Mexico. Right. It's kind of a fascinating character, um, you know, senator. Um, but we don't we don't pay attention to that stuff. Uh, like I, my whole background before I saw Hamilton was that Got Milk commercial. I don't know if you remember that one did you remember that commercial <laughs> I have, so i have i have been using uh no ad stuff for like a yeah. decade and a half so i have no memory of commercials well, this was like 20 years ago <laughs> and it was great because it's a really famous commercial um but uh and it does tie back into the musical i promise uh but there's a guy <laughs> who's in it and he's in a museum and he's uh eating like a peanut butter sandwich and on the radio they say uh, you know, to win the big prize, you call in and tell us, uh, uh, or we're going to call you and you tell us who shot uh, Alexander Hamilton. His phone rings, he picks it up and they're like, what's the answer? And he says, I won't bore, because he's got, you know, <laughs> peanut butter sandwich in his mouth and he can't get it out. And so he ends up losing this contest because the, he can't, Aww. he doesn't have any milk <laughs> to wash it down with. Um, and so like the, the Hamilton cast actually reenacted that commercial. Oh my um, goodness. Which is just fantastic. And in, in the commercial, like the, the original commercial, he's like in a museum surrounded by stuff of the event, like the dueling pistols and all that kind of stuff. And he's like uh, uniquely positioned uh, to be able to answer that question. <laughs> um, and that's another reason I really love Hamilton is that you can see all of this stuff that they did for the community. Because uh, even though they were, they were huge and people were paying like $1,000 for the tickets. They knew that there were people who could not, you know, pay a thousand dollars for a show. That that is a significant portion of my income. I, you know, people like me can't pay that. But they would do these um, uh, Ham for Hamilton uh, shows out in front of the Broadway theater where they would perform uh, songs and skits, uh, skits and stuff. Um, and then they had a raffle that if you won, you would pay ten dollars per ticket for a front row wow. seat to Hamilton. Um, oh, and my wow. brother, my brother actually won one of those in the Chicago, not for the original cast, um, but got to see Hamilton uh, for 10 bucks from the front oh, row. Um, so I think that's another thing I really love about them uh, as a cast is they were, they were willing to give back to their audience because they knew 
uh, some of us are poor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. it's, it's, it kind of goes in theme with the accessibility of Hamilton too, right. because the, that's sort of what blocks me from wanting to dig into the, like the world of theater plays and musicals. I have a yeah. friend who, who is pretty invested in it and I've gone to his local shows, so, several of them actually. And I've, if I enjoyed, I've enjoyed all of them. Um, because as somebody who watches as many movies as I do, there is a point when I've just given up, uh, I, I have really given into suspension, uh, suspension of disbelief yeah. and that's kind of theater. Like theater right. is like Hamilton is this bullet is traveling in slow motion, right? <laughs> How do you know? Because an actor standing there with their fingers holding a quote unquote bullet carrying it right. across. And to me, knowing that this format is that way i'm easily able to suspend disbelief and i'm like this is really powerful <laughs> this is great uh, this is yeah. blowing my mind um but because it's in a theater that is typically smaller and it has to accommodate for the sound traveling to the back seats and all that jazz it's not gonna get as much travel as some some sort of movie showing in a thousand theater screens across the United States. Exactly. And so, like the cost of getting into that me getting into the the cost of getting into that particular medium is very difficult. And so that that's wonderful to hear because it does sound like for them too. I mean, they were just doing it because they love it and they want to do it as much as they can. I mean, I think I read eight shows a week. I'm like, that's unbelievable. That's crazy. That is yeah. exerting a lot of energy. You're singing while you're moving. You're singing very loudly. So your throat, I mean, you're just probably drinking lemon tea constantly. All day. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. it's insane. I, I, I loved the play. I loved the music and I love the story and the creation behind all of it in that way. And I think, I think that's what may also can make for really great art is the surrounding content of the art because oh, yeah. That that puts to that puts into perspective the legitimacy of the project itself because it really is about like the 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 atmosphere of the play with the music and and the way the story is told and in certain ways I would say the off the cuff lyrics <laughs> right creates a very modern accessibility to it no matter how much disney plus wants to censor the play right and uh yeah so it's just it's great i think i having known nothing about it and now knowing two weeks worth of solid information <laughs> about it i am completely convinced in why this was such a big deal and i right. i think i think that's so cool i think it's so cool yeah and obviously there are a lot of reasons people object to it, but I think that uh, as, yes. as a work of art, you kind of have to step back and be like, yeah, that that's pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. As a work of art, as a cultural phenomena, I think all of that definitely gives value to it. I've brought it up before on the podcast and I'll bring it up again and it's going to sound like out of left field, but having read A Clockwork Orange and agreeing with Anthony Burgess that it is a uh, totally needless story recognizing its cultural impact is is important to understanding it hmm. that doesn't mean it's good right <laughs> but knowing that it had a, a massive cultural impact or at the very least in the art scene a cultural impact that's that's important right. hamilton is significantly more i would say more valuable than a clockwork orange oh yeah but it has the same vibe where you really have you have to t to recognize it now because of the platform it's been given yeah and that's that's fine because it's good 
Yeah. That's and fine. it's a great tool to enter some really big discussions uh, about, you know, racism. Um, can, yes. uh, can we kind of uh, reappropriate things in history, in art? Uh, you know, can we cast, uh, you know, a very diverse cast of people in roles that were, you know, white guys, basically, um, you know, can, can we do those things? And what is the, what is the cultural impact? It asks a lot of really big and important questions. Um, and uh, I think that's a sign of a great piece of art is that it, it asks some really good questions and kind of leads you to a place where you can discuss it. Absolutely. And I'd love to talk further about that, but <laughs> I think some really interesting stuff might be some trivia oh. about Hamilton that absolutely blew my some of which blew my mind and others yeah. that i found very very funny so funny so would you want to go through those chris yeah let's do it awesome so the first thing that i i ended up finding out just and and several of these are uh from a couple different interviews and stuff which unfortunately i don't directly cite i just put at the doc bottom of this document so I, and i'm not going to scroll down so yeah just uh just know that these are out in the ether totally accessible the first one that I found fascinating was that Lynn Manuel Lynn Manuel Miranda began writing a song for Ben Franklin, a character who doesn't even show up no. in this, but he, I believe, it was supposed to be around the time that Lafayette, uh, right before he comes back and and is introduced in the beginning of the second act, he was going to have a song with Ben Franklin. His idea was to give him a country rock song. As he felt Ben Franklin was a totally different generation, which that immediately to me goes, okay, that makes total sense. Yeah. He, and to use Miranda's own words, he wanted it to sound like the Decemberists, as he's a big fan of theirs. Uh, however, he ultimately cut it because he felt like jumping across the ocean, like again, after doing it for King George several times, he just felt that that would have been too much and kind of pulled away from that. Also, from what he's learned, Hamilton and Franklin never really intersected beyond the Constitutional Convention, yeah. but... He already comfortably kind of intersects characters that we're pretty sure didn't actually meet historically. So I think he could have made an excuse for it. But I think yeah. also, I think, I think jumping across the ocean for anybody else other than King George would have been a little disorienting to yeah. say the least. But you probably noticed that for King George himself also has a different style of music. Uh, he has sort of exactly. a British invasion style song uh, with that poppy da 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 da. Da, that's da, right da, 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 da. and it's also it's also the only one that sounds a bit more like a classic musical mm -hmm. um, which i think for me evoked sort of here's the old and it's king george and here's the new and it's mm -hmm. hip-hop music and and much more stuff like that so I, I i think i think what's great about this play the more i read about it is that there's so much that lin-manuel puts into it that there's a lot of ways to interpret stuff so i right I love, I think King George is one of the best places for interpreting stuff because he is such a great character. <laughs> yeah. And he's barely on screen, but he totally just steals the show. Yeah. It's amazing. So the second one I found was that another cut idea was a rap battle about slavery between Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison. That alone, the description can seem a little challenging and and it was uh it was in the midst of an interview that he described it that way so i can understand just very passively saying it that way with with perhaps a little less care but i'm i'm sure that he's not meaning it in a very bad way anyways to to contextualize that miranda intended that the play would include a fair balance of good things in some of these figures and bad things which if you've seen the play you know that there's a fair amount of bad that these characters do that make you 
question their morality a fair amount. Um, the first half very much grounds the setting. And then the second half of the play really digs into like, man, these guys really are just politicians. <laughs> right. They're all just yeah. a bunch of scumbags. And so <laughs> not to... I, I would say they're fallible, but uh, I mean, <laughs> yes. which is an interesting thing because like uh, one of the criticisms of the show is that it sort of has this hero worship of these fallible characters. But if you look at it, I mean, all of them have flaws um, that they have. I mean, Hamilton sleeping around on his wife. No, not only sleeping around on his wife, but then defending his his honor by just saying, I didn't break the law. I just slept with somebody. <laughs> That's not better. Right. I like, think, yeah, <laughs> it's it's something. It's it, it, it's not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, and that's a total, real total thing. worship total worship of his position. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, something that really happened. Um, but, uh, it, it does show you that they, they, he's not perfect. Um, exactly. You know, he was obviously a workaholic. Um, he didn't know how to say no to a duel, which is like a very fundamental principle (laughs) to staying alive, especially when you've witnessed so many duels in your life. Um, yeah. Chris, do you think you could you could stand down a duel or do you think you'd have to go through with it? Oh, I could never go with it. I could never go through with it at all. <laughs> Not I mean, even I, to defend your honor? I don't have honor. Are you kidding me? I, <laughs> I, I'm a, I drive a school uh, bus to pay for a podcast. I don't think I have a whole lot to fight for. Uh, just, boast, boast in Christ. Yeah, brother, I don't have very far Christ. to fall, so uh, it's not a big deal. Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, cont- continuing with that, um, you know, Manuel said that he uh, wa- ha- wanted to have this fair balance of good things and bad things too, and one of them would have been this particular song. So basically, the song would have had Jefferson emphasizing how he's written against slavery, while Hamilton argue- argues the absurdity of that, knowing that Jefferson is currently having an affair with one of his slaves, and then Madison would clap back by calling out Hamilton's own affair. And the song would kind of keep going back and forth, and it would be like, these guys are thinking about slavery, but they don't do anything about it. Why? Because they're all weak and cowardly. <laughs> and uh, in the end, Miranda ends up cutting the song because he felt narratively and historically the culmination of the conversation didn't really go anywhere. Right. And so, which, which, yeah, historically it didn't, they're like, they talked about it, but then nothing happened because slavery kind of kept happening and then systematic issues kept happening (laughs) up until now. So he's then felt that like, as much as that is an indictment against the founding fathers and would have been a very effective and probably very poignant thing for Hamilton to have, it would effectively full stop a particular plot point of the play Mm -hmm. and really damage the pacing. And this is where... I was reminded of, I don't know if you know of the movie, The, uh, the Room by Tommy Wiseau. I have not seen it. I, I've, I've heard a fair bit about it, but yeah, it's supposed to be one of the worst movies of all time. Yeah. Yes. And it has a lot of very entertaining things about it. I'm not necessarily recommending here because it does have a particular aspect of the play or of the movie that's not good. But there's a particular plot point that comes out of nowhere when, when one of the characters is talking to her mother and her mother just out of the blue with no preparation just goes and the test results came back. I definitely have breast cancer. And then the conversation just goes back to whatever else it was talking about. Never brought up again, anything. Now it would not be as drastic, let alone as somewhat comedic as that to have this song in the play. But I completely understand how it's like, why bring something up? That's really not a focus in this particular interpretation of these historical events. Mm -hmm. 
and then just not bring it up again. Yeah. Not only would I feel like that's irreverent to that particular conversation, it also just wouldn't do it any service, which I know is part of the criticism that Hamilton is getting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because they do. They, one of the other rap battles does feature um, Hamilton and Jefferson going back and forth about paying for labor uh, and slavery. That's right. And so it's that's right. I, it's a really interesting mix whenever you try to get into those discussions because people want you to focus so much on that um, and spend right. – it's sort of like in a Christian film where you have to spend some unknown, unspoken percentage of it talking specifically about Jesus. Um, and if you don't hit that percentage right on, everybody freaks out. And then if you do hit, the, hit that percentage right on, you better be coming at it from the p- position of the particular denomination that's watching it. <laughs> right. Oh, it's impossible. But it's the, yeah. same with, it's the same with slavery. I mean, obviously a very important issue, but there are so many issues involved in the show. And also trying to carry a storyline, it's 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 a tough balance that uh, Lin Manuel Miranda had to walk in order to address all that. I mean, there is a rap battle in this thing about creating the national debt, um, which is like, who else does that? Um, <laughs> right. But I mean, right. like uh, a huge part of Hamilton's legacy was was creating the national debt, it to, in order to bring together the states uh, to take states' debts and assume it in the federal government. Uh, after the Revolutionary War to try to bring some unity to them. And it's like, how come nobody is saying, well, there's not enough talk about the national debt in the show? <laughs> <You> know, but <laughs> the thing is, like, it, uh, slavery is very much addressed in the, in the show. Um, it's just not lingered on probably as much as that magic percent uh, that people would like. And also, we don't. Uh, one of the main criticisms of the show that's going on right now is that several of the the heroes of the show, the the protagonists, were slave owners, like George Washington, right. um, and right. possibly Hamilton himself uh, may have owned slaves. And um, and so that there's some conflict in that, uh, and they don't really absolutely ad- they don't really address Washington's um, slavery, except for um, the actor who played him. At the very end, the last song, uh, Who Lives, Who Ties, Who Tells Your Story, I can't remember the exact name of it. Uh, at one point, um, Eliza mentions slavery, and he looks ashamed. Mm. Um, the actor kind of interpreted that, uh, that once, this, once he got to heaven, basically, he would realize that his sin, his sin was slavery. It should have been addressed. Yeah. But it's basically, in the, in the show, it's basically just an him putting his head down. Sure. Uh, so it's not much, um, yeah. but that's, that's one of the main criticisms that's going on right now is that it doesn't, uh, it, it sort of sets up these protagonists who were also part of that sin of slavery. It's, it's tough for us because we as audience goers are so used to sort of, this is the good guy. This is the bad guy. Um, and in reality, in a lot of history, You'll, you'll, when you find out the whole story, you realize that things are a lot more complex than just the good guy and just the bad guy. Mm. We're living in a period where maybe your generation experienced a bit of it, and my my generation is absolutely experiencing it. And I have no idea how how Zoomers are doing, but I'm sure it's pretty bad. Yeah, where a lot of the things that you've been raised on, you're learning all these horrible things about certain things. I have an episode that I did last year on uh, Amazon Prime's The Boys, a show that I probably would have never uh, recorded uh, or talked about now, but then I just had different sensibilities. However, I still d- defend how I spoke about it in the episode because the the show is a cynical 
take on superheroes and how if if there were superheroes and they had all this immense power, they'd really still just be frat boys and they'd be jerks about it. And they'd be terrible. <laughs> and it's like there's a lot of irony to that and a lot of comedy to it, but it's like also really challenging material. Yeah. And I was like, why are people so fascinated with this? Why am I even so fascinated with right. this? Because I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching it at the time. And uh, part of the reason I haven't rewatched it is because I don't want to... I don't want to find that I would still enjoy it the same way. Yeah. But it's, but anyways, that's enough about me. The episode I dig into like, well, why are people connecting so much about this? And it's because the justice system has failed several times. I, I started yeah. citing uh, Brock Turner who, who, who basically sexually assaulted a, I think she was a passed out girl who yes. witnesses yeah. saw it. And yet he was only tried for, he was tried and sentenced for six months of, of jail time and then only served three and was back out. It's an amazingly irritating and angering story to read, but I think it's deeply important. Yeah. And then there was, you know, uh, currently we're seeing a lot of police violence and stuff come more to the light. And so you're, you're, you're told you're supposed to be safe with the police and then you're finding out that might not be true. And then I even cite, and this is probably my biggest section during the episode was citing how there's just 70 years of recorded sexual assault cases within the church led by, by church figures and stuff. Yeah. And all of that gets you to a point where like the information age, making that so readily available to everybody. Now you're just going, well, what the heck am I supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. who am I supposed to believe and have trust in? And that goes in hand in hand with the founding fathers, where a lot of people that really de put their faith on depending on the American dream and the American system and the American experiment are either wrestling with the fact that the Ameri the the founders of America were just as sinful as anyone else, yeah, or even more so in some cases, or are just trying to ignore it. And I think that's where the debate of Hamilton comes in is because they're like, is Hamilton as a play ignoring those things? Is Hamilton as a play not, not talking about them enough? Is yeah. Hamilton as a play just something else? Which I think I lean on that side. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda had a story he wanted to tell and is also depending on the fact that other stories will cover other parts of, of, the, of the founding right. fathers. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing to me, but I don't, I don't think it's a bad conversation to be having because basically no. what's happening is people are being challenged with existentialism with, which I kind of feel like is the first stage of get, becoming Christian is learning that this age isn't right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All have sinned and fallen short. Yeah. Cause it's, it's right. much easier to worship a hero than it is to understand the complexity of good and evil. Right. And, and so it's a perfect, it's a perfect place for Christians to be able to go, you're right. The founding fathers were terrible and, and, and stuff like that. Well, let's talk about a real hero, Jesus Christ. Bam. You're now evangelizing baby. It's perfect. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You really could use it that way if you wanted to. And I, you see that a lot in pastor worship um, in churches where a pastor will be, you know, held up as perfect. And then somebody finds out that, you know, they, they sinned um, and then it destroys the faith of all those people in the church. Yes. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. it's not an excuse for us to continue sinning, but the reality is that all of us will sin. And if we hold people up, we we're asking for a fall. Right. On my Patreon things for truce. Um, I've, I've had some of my Patreon subscribers come back and say, you know, Chris, um, you probably don't want, you don't want to be telling people the negative things that you're, you're wrestling with. 
while making this show, but it's like, they're going to hate my show because I say <laughs> stuff I'm struggling with all the time <laughs> because I, I want, you know, I, I, I want people to know that even though I'm trying to make an authoritative show, I myself am a human being. Yes. You know, just one underfunded human being who's also, you know, got three other jobs. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and that's really hard for us to hear in the Christian market. We want everybody to be, gotten like demigods that is not reality and that is not what the bible yes. puts forward yeah. yeah so anyway we got through like two fun facts <laughs> and, and that second one just led us into a not so fun conversation oh my but like yeah. it was very good I, I absolutely love that i think those are the conversations we need to be having and people need to be having about hamilton so yeah, that's that's true. totally great it's true now on to a fact that should spark a good <laughs> good good feeling good vibes kind of thing the third fact, uh, or trivia, or whatever you want to call it, plenty of political figures and celebrities have seen Hamilton, as well as a fair amount that visited after the show to meet the cast. However, not everyone makes it back, and, well, I'll quote Lin-Manuel Miranda directly from, the, from this Rolling Stone interview that I, that I got some of these from. It speaks for itself. Quote, Mitt Romney was here a couple of weeks ago, but didn't come back. I really wanted to see that hair in person. I am in awe of his hair. I've had my agreements and disagreements with him politically, but goodness, it's just so, ah, every time, maybe the best hair in politics, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I that's great too because I think of all of the qualities Donald Trump has of which we are not digging into his hair is definitely the one that I remember the most and so yeah, yeah. it's funny that he's saying Mitt Romney's got the better hair in the game well if I'm not mistaken I think Mike Pence actually went to a staged production of Hamilton and they had a at the end during the bow they had a message for him they did to try that's to, right yeah try to respect people that made international news as well um and uh, kind of upset a lot of people but yeah, a lot of political figures have gone, including the Obamas, um, who uh, Michelle Obama said it was her favorite work of art uh, of any kind. Oh, that's really sweet. Paintings, you know, drawings, uh, theater, music is her favorite piece of art, um, which was uh, pretty incredible because uh, as yeah. you probably know, uh, one of its sort of uh, principal founding stories was that uh, um, Manuel, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda had had written just sort of a, a rough sketch of, of of a song of the first song of the musical, um, and performed it for the Obamas at a poetry jam. And you can actually see this on YouTube. It's pretty fascinating. So that then seven years later they bring back the cast of Hamilton when it's a full stage production and perform it mm. at the, at the White House. Wow! Because the Obamas were just super fans. Uh, I think that must have been a tremendous thrill uh, amongst many. I mean, he won. I think it was 11 Tonys and then Pulitzer Prize uh, for Hamilton. Uh, I can only imagine that having the president of the United States tell you, uh, you know, and his wife tell you it was one of their favorite works of art of all time. That, yeah, <laughs> pretty incredible. <laughs> that is. Speaking of Tonys, the fourth one, the fourth fact is that despite roughly nine or so minutes of onstage time, Jonathan Groff, who performs King George III, was able to net a second Tony nomination spittle and all yeah so that's pretty cool Th this one here is one of the sweetest ones that i i read also with jonathan groff uh number five is 
In between his segments on stage, Jonathan Groff, in an interview with, uh, and by the way, Jonathan Groff, if you're listening to this podcast and I'm totally mispronouncing your last name or first name or any part of your name, tweet at me and then come on the show. Um, In between his segments on stage, Jonathan Groff, in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, is quoted saying, I read all the books I have always wanted to read, but never did. Right, because he spends most of the show off stage. Um, So he was able to just read a ton. Yeah. He then shares that not once, but twice he would finish reading a book, began weeping over its impact, and then realize he had to go on stage in like a minute. (laughs) You can imagine how difficult that would be considering how King George III is basically a comedic break in the dramatic play. Yeah. Would you like to hear these, Chris? I I would absolutely love to hear it. Yeah. (laughs) So the the first was after finishing Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. An intimate nonfiction written from father to son about the United States history and current racial crisis. Quoting from the same interview, quote, that one, I was weeping in the dressing room. My mind was so blown. And then I had to go out and play this white king. And I thought, oh, goodness, I am white supremacy right now. And it's seriously <laughs> affected my performance, end quote. Goodness. <laughs> That's- <laughs> I can't even... Having done theater, I will say that there is um, there is a, a a joy in having done a show so many times that you don't have to act much anymore. You just kind of fall into <laughs> muscle memory, and I kind of hope that that's what happened to him is that he just fell into the muscle memory. But now I'm sure every listener is wondering what the second situation was for da, Jonathan da, da. Groff to be like weeping before going on stage. And this one, this one's really sweet. The second case was finishing a little life by Hanya Yanagihara. If you didn't know, I had to repeat that like six times, but you're only going to hear it the one time. A story. The story is basically about four college students who moved to New York with lofty aspirations and ultimately about the families we come from and the ones we make along the journey we call life. On A Little Life, Jonathan Groff is quoted saying, quote, I was crying so hard and I went down to Leslie Odom's dressing room because he was also reading the same book. I embraced him and cried into his neck and then had to come back out and be King George, end quote. <laughs> So he just had like a total bro oh, moment yeah. and like had to go speak to his buddy about it, which Leslie Autumn is Aaron Burr for anybody listening. And and it's just like weeping into this guy's neck. <laughs> and then it's like, all right, now I got to go out and be the white supremacy again. He's got to pick happier books. Yeah. <laughs> like what's going on? Oh, man. Now this, this, these particular, they're facts six and seven, but they're kind of like the same. And I'm going to, I'm just going to read, I'm going to read all of this for you. Um, maybe you already knew all this. I don't know, but for anybody listening, you're you're definitely going to want to hear it all together because there's a lot of weird numbers to it. So 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 here we go. So David Diggs, who performs Lafayette and Jefferson and Hamilton, had worked with Lin Manuel Miranda prior to Hamilton on a hip hop comedy improv group called Freestyle Love Supreme. He's also, I believe, the lead vocalist for Clipping, which is uh, their their album. There used to be an uh, I think it's called There Used to Be an Addiction to Blood. Very challenging album, but very good. But I mean, Debbie Diggs is just great with everything he does. So if you're if you're liking Hamilton, you might enjoy that. Anyways, during the song Guns and Ships, aptly named Reddit user Marquis de Lafayette breaks down the speed with which David Diggs delivers his lyrics. So if you guys are ready to have your mind blown, this is crazy. So, oh, yeah. so first off, the song has 319 words in total with a runtime of two minutes and seven seconds. Breaking that down... That's about 2.5 words per second, which is pretty crazy. But of course, David isn't singing the entire time of the song. The track has breaks for music and movement. So taking into account when he speaks, 
you're seeing a breakdown of about four to six words per second, with one line reaching eight words per second, which is insane. And this is where the second fact kind of comes in, but it's all tied together. I ended up finding an article titled Hamilton would last four to six hours if it were sung at the pace of other Broadway shows written by Leah Labresco on the website 538. We all know Hamilton and embracing its hip hop nature is fast, but Leah Labresco is here to find out just how fast Hamilton really is. In the article, author Leah Labresco breaks down the cast albums of several plays, including Hamilton, figuring out their subsequent word counts and dividing it against the cast album's length. Hamilton takes the cake by a long shot, but I want to look at the runner out first to really paint the picture here. The musical Springs Awakenings cast album runs about an hour and a minute with a total of 4,709 words. Breaking that up by words per minute, that's about 77 words per minute. Hamilton, however, is wild, with a cast album length of 2 hours and 23 minutes, and a whopping 20,520 words, we're looking at an average of 144 words per minute. Yeah, that's that's insane. Spring Awakening doesn't even come close. Conversely, author Leah Labresco takes into account Pirates of Penzance, which has the lowest words per minute when comparing its cast album length, uh, which is about an hour and 43 minutes to its word count of 5,962 words. Rounding this, we get about 58 words per minute. So that's pretty slow. And if Hamilton were to take 58 words per minute to get through it's wild 20,520 words. You would be sitting there in that theater for five hours and 55 minutes. Wow. And you thought Avengers Endgame was long. Yeah. That's insane. That's two Avengers Endgames. So that's, I, that's insane. I, I was surprised to see that Pirates of Penzance thing because uh, they had that famous song, I am the picture of a modern major general, which is basically almost a rap because it's going yes. so fast. And yeah. yet it was apparently very slow across the rest of the show. Yeah, isn't it's crazy. And 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 just a cute thing to reinforce how gun, crazy Guns and Ships is. When comparing simply the fastest verse, Guns and Ships beats out every other song included in in the place she cho- she has chosen with 18 words across 3 seconds. So that's about 6.3 words a second. The runner up was a song titled Not Getting Married Today from the play Company with 68 words over 11 seconds coming out to 6.2 words per second. So it just missed the cut. But author Leah Labresco feels inclined to give the reward to company for fastest as whomever is singing would have to deliver their lyric consistently over a longer period of time as David Diggs has breaks between his time to breathe while the cast surrounding him cheers. Even though that's stupid impressive for a play that's already like massive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think anybody who has been trying to like sing along to Hamilton like has experienced this where they feel bad that they haven't gotten every word right. <laughs> yeah. I have gotten there. And then I have to remember, you know what? It's got so many more words than any other musical. Uh, you know, like you have to take it easy on yourself. Like I, I was on a hike once with a friend and backpacking and we were trying to sing along and it was amazing that neither of us could remember whole sections of the show. Uh, <laughs> even though we like were listening to it over and over again and trying to sing along. Ah, oh, but it, yeah, there are so, so many words. That was actually one of my biggest worries when starting it was that it was so fast paced that I was like, I know this isn't like a big budget, crazy action movie with a bunch of stuff going on, but I'm getting that experience where I'm being so front loaded with information that I just can't keep up and enjoy it the way it's supposed to be enjoyed. However, by the time I got to the second half, I was 
I'll describe it this way. I was basically beaten into submission, accepted that this was the experience and learned to enjoy it. And yeah. I enjoyed it. So that was yeah. a good thing. <laughs> I, I had the same experience when I saw Les Mis for the first time. Uh, the Miserable. Um, uh, you know, obviously another Broadway musical turned into a movie. That one, there is so much story involved. I was really concerned I wouldn't be able to follow along. Uh, but because they they take such care of you as an audience member to walk you through, you can at least get the main points, even if you're not getting every subtlety. And I think Hamilton does the same, um, especially by focusing on just a few characters. Um, I think that's another benefit of having cut Ben Franklin out of the the musical is that um, even though he was important in the founding of the country, he wasn't important to the story they were telling. And, uh, yeah. and that's, that's a really, that's a really good bit of care that an author uh, takes for the audience is when they just give you a few people to hold on to. So I thought one of the, one of the big things about historical fiction, historical narratives is historical accuracy. And and we've talked about this many times on the cinema, on the cinematic doctrine podcast before um, historical media, whether fiction or nonfiction has a, unique and difficult task that there's a responsibility to recognizing that there's a depiction of historical figures and events and how that depiction can be influential. Now that impact can be good or bad. However, it's a strong reality that historical fiction and nonfiction has the opportunity to make an impact on the general public and how they perceive those events in real life. And Hamilton is no exception to that. In fact, it is very much the exception because <laughs> Um, or it, Hamilton is very much the prime example of how powerful historical fiction can be. Yeah. And we dig into that much further in our Samson episode of the podcast where my wife and I spent an entire section going over this sort of thing. We don't really need to do that here, but I am interested in the true history behind Hamilton and the founding fathers. So Chris, would you like, would you happen to have any insight into those historical accuracies and inaccuracies in Hamilton? Yeah, I've got, I've got a nice list of historical inaccuracies. I, I tend to think just as a side note for me, um, it helps to think of the show as a work of art and not necessarily, not necessarily as a historic document. Yes. Uh, that is not really what it's trying to do. Um, and I, I think that yeah. sort of media literacy is something that we we definitely lack in our modern age. Um, yes. we're, we're not really good at separating fact from fiction or um, uh, fact from art. Yeah, media media literacy is like a subsection of like anti intellectualism, where like it is, it's yeah. it's this idea that like you need to know that while this is historical fiction. He had to read historical documents to get that. You can go read those historical documents. You can. Yeah. And one of the great <laughs> benefits of this show is that it is bringing people to that point where they're researching it themselves. You know, a lot of people yes. have read that Ron Chernow book that uh, Hamilton is based on uh, uh, about the history of Hamilton and what actually happened. And oftentimes, one of the purposes of art, and it can be very frustrating for some folks, is is not necessarily to not necessarily to uh, make a specific point, to, but to get you to think about something yes. in a different way. Like there was a, a famous, I'm going to butcher the name of it, but there's a famous work, work of art that's uh, in the New York City. And it's just a shark suspended in formaldehyde. And uh, it's just a big, big old case. And you can walk all around it. And, and a lot of people were like, this is not art. It's just a shark suspended in formaldehyde. Um, and then I looked at the the nameplate when I was there and it said something about like, I'm contemplating the reality of mortality or something like that. And I was like, oh, now if you think about knowing what the title of it is, that it's about mortality, 
you see this great beast that's in this tank of formaldehyde that once was ferocious and roaming the oceans, just gobbling up food. And now it's in a museum and it's completely harmless. And you start to see those, those bigger themes in there. So sometimes all it takes is just, uh, our art is just about starting a conversation about something like that shark mm. was starting a conversation about mortality. Hamilton uh, is starting discussions about uh, race and the founding fathers and the country, even in inside theater. Why aren't there more roles for, uh, you know, theater is historically very liberal, you know, uh, leaning with a, a very liberal leaning medium, there are not a lot of great roles for Hispanic people yeah. or for African-Americans. It's still very much a white person's game. Um, and so you got this, all these roles that were traditionally played by white men, uh, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, if you see 1776, the musical, you know, it's, it's just a sea of white. Um, <laughs> but in <laughs> Hamilton, they, they have kind of turned that on its head where it's, you know, they're, they're creating a lot of roles for a lot of different people, which is, is pretty cool. So anyway, that's another soapbox I'm off of. Uh, so yeah, differences, I loved it. yeah differences <laughs> between history and, and the musical. Um, and again, understand it's a work of art. Like I said, Washington slavery is not really addressed uh, directly, and he is sort of um, a hero in the musical. Like he's very authoritative; uh, he takes charge of things, and he has some just beautiful songs. I mean, the the actor who plays him uh, has one of the best. Um, his name is Chris Jackson, one of the best voices in the whole cast. Oh yeah, but he barely mentions that this guy who was you know fighting for the Union was also a slaveholder. Yeah. And um, another thing that I thought was really fascinating is that there's a big focus on Philip, um, which is Hamilton's son, who gets in a duel um, and dies in a duel. I don't, hopefully that doesn't ruin anything for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Hamilton actually had eight children, which is, you know, you don't get, because of the limitations of telling a giant story, you can't go through every single kid. Um, but uh, that's, you know, an interesting little nugget. Um, they only really focus on one of his kids. Um, and as I said, uh, it's possible that Hamilton and his family did own slaves, which is interesting because um, in the musical, you hear a lot about him uh, fighting against slavery or talking down on slavery. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll never be free until we end slavery, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. He may have been a part of it, which is convicting. Yes. And, uh, and there's all these different things. A lot of the, the, the confusion about the show, a lot of the historic inaccuracies are just timing things. Like this didn't happen until later or, you know, right. he reshuffled things. In the, the way that um, Lin-Manuel Miranda organizes the show, throughout the first act, Hamilton and uh, Burr keep meeting over and over again and just running into each other in different ways. And in life, they really did um, intersect in different ways, but not always the ones that are depicted in the musical. And I, I imagine that was probably a frustration to try to explain because Hamilton and Burr may have actually met at Elizabethtown Academy, which was sort of like a, um, a precursor to college. Uh, sort of like it was something that, uh, that Hamilton did in order to get ready to go to King's College was he went to Elizabethtown Academy. Uh, that may have been their first actual meeting instead of the one that's depicted in the musical, which is after Hamilton may have punched the bursar at, at King's College. And apparently that didn't happen either, but uh, it makes for a nice story, uh, but it, does. <laughs> it, it may not have happened. Um, and their, their first actual documented meeting wasn't until 1786. 
um, but they probably met earlier because they were both lawyers at the same time. And so they probably interacted. And actually, Burr briefly served on Hamilton or on Washington's staff, hmm. which is interesting because there's a song where, uh, or a, a moment where Burr comes into Washington's office during the war and is like, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to become a part of your staff. Well, actually, Burr was a part of Washington's staff, uh, but he left so he could be the aide de camp of General Putnam instead. Hmm. So he was actually kind of Hamilton's counterpart in the war, just with a different general. So interesting. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, it makes a much tidier story if it's, yes. you know, if you just see Hamilton uh, besting him, <laughs> you start yeah. to get a little bit of that, um, uh, that idea of his um, uh, jealousy of Hamilton. Mm. And that really comes out for in that song, Wait For It. Oh, yes. <laughs> that That is like <sighs> a seething song. <laughs> it is. And it's such a great, uh, to me, okay, I know. This is a bias, but I love like my favorite songs in in musicals or any kind of show are generally the bad guy songs because you get this you get this passion in them that you don't always get with the the protagonist. And and uh, wait for it is such a great song because it's all about how much he wants to be like or wants what Hamilton has and that he is he's a great man but he just hasn't been given the opportunity. It's such a great song. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the rawness and the honesty of it. There's yeah. really no buttering up. There's no there's no hiding behind pride. It I mean it is technically pride, but it's like not hiding it. Right. And while it's important to keep your pride in check, you can't really respond to it if the light hasn't been brought to it. And so yeah. as an audience member, it becomes very powerful because you're I mean, he's like singing it to you, like to your face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now you're like, oh, I, I connect with that. But you don't want to tell anybody you connect with it, you know, because, you know, it's, uh, but then you do. And, and that's why it's so powerful. It's so good. That is a deeply powerful song. Deeply <sighs> powerful. I love it. I have, I have belted that song many a time in my car. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So uh, oh, there's a lot of the whole list of other uh, historic inaccuracies. Um, like uh, Martha Washington may not have actually named her cat after Hamilton because uh, Hamilton was a bit of a player. And so there's a joke in the musical that uh, Martha Washington named her Tomcat after him because he was a player. Uh, may not have actually happened. Also a great little joke. Uh, that's pretty fun. Um, and then also like the, the, in the, the wedding of Eliza and Hamilton is a really big event in the show. but um, Almost nobody actually came to support Hamilton, uh, first of all, because mm. he didn't really have much of a family. So it was very yeah. much the Schuyler sisters and, and their family. And he didn't really have anybody there, but also because he was, you know, uh, all of the people he knew in the U.S. were working on war preparations and they weren't about to leave right. war preparations for a funeral or for a wedding. It probably wasn't the big event that you see. And also the, the Schuyler sisters had three brothers. Uh, who are not mentioned in this show. That's right. That's right. And Peggy kind of just vanishes anyway. So she does. And, you know, and she does a really, uh, Hamilton does a really interesting thing with those kind of characters where in the first act, you'll have an actor playing one thing. And in the second act, you'll have another playing uh, the yes. same, same actress playing a different thing. So she yeah. actually ends up becoming Mariah Reynolds, who is sort of the, the temptress in the, in the second act um, that he ends up falling for. 
You know, I didn't even notice that. So I yeah. guess that makes sense why she's gone <laughs> in yeah, the second it does. half. Yeah, well, and, and her her singing style, it, like the actress who played her was so good. Her singing style is dramatically different between the two roles. Um, so it would actually be hard to tell if you didn't know. But she she does a, a stunning job. Um, and actually, there's there was a comedian who brought up while we were talking about sort of uh, things that are controversial about the musical. Um, that song where uh, Hamilton seduces Mariah Reynolds or the other way around, or both are seducing each other. Uh, the song is called Say No to This. Um, and the, the lyrics are, Lord, show me how to say no to this. And Hamilton says that as he's, he's being tempted uh, to sleep with this woman. Um, there's a comedian who pointed out, and I wish I'd remembered her name, but she said, say no to what? She didn't ask you anything. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Mariah Reynolds comes to him looking for help because her husband has been abusive and uh, she needs money. And Hamilton ends up sleeping with her um, and carrying on a relationship with her. So the, there's this other sort of thing that doesn't really get addressed in the musical is was uh, Mariah Reynolds participating in this on her own volition? Oh, wow. Um, or was she forced by a powerful man into a relationship? for money. Interesting. Yeah. Because there's that lyric, um, later on, uh, it's when he writes the letters, um, to, Mm -hmm. to acquit himself of, of treason that he mentions that it's quote unquote consensual. But then, yeah, if, if the husband exploits the particular relationship that Hamilton and his wife are in, and she was sharing that, like it was abusive, yeah. Then, yeah, it probably was coercion or, yeah, because she then pleads afterward that, like, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it or anything. So it's like, right. But it is like a difficult thing, too, because then is she lying or not? But, yeah, the reality still is like the the, the two things are that are going on are a, sin makes everything worse. <laughs> and of course. So like basically, yes. like there's several different sins in that particular thing taking place. And then, yeah, I think the comedian's spot on too. It's like, say no to what? She's not asking you. Right. <laughs> she, she's asking for help. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and the song implies that she's seducing him. But, but yeah, it's another very, another very difficult thing. But I think honestly, like the, those sort of discussions will always happen yeah. when popular media happens, like because there's just different experiences with popular challenging media and i would say hamilton's relatively challenging the second act is definitely challenging yeah (laughs) it's very rich yeah there's a lot of stuff to talk about yeah a lot of stuff especially as our lenses keep changing uh one of the things is you watch videos online um sort of before um our current moment with black lives matters protests going on here this summer 2020 uh, different themes were standing out to people before when the show originally came out and now the themes of racism and uh, slavery are really standing out to people. Yes. Uh, so it's kind of the the interesting thing about art is that um, the time in which you view it can change your impression of that piece, uh, which is kind of a, an interesting thing. Yeah. So onward with the, the fast facts, uh, we've got uh, <laughs> uh, Aaron Burr. Was, there are three duels in the musical, um, and Aaron Burr was not Charles Lee's second in, like, during the duel. Uh, so he wasn't even there. Um, he was he was hundreds of miles away. But it makes for a much, again, nicer story point if Burr is at the first uh, duel and then is, you know, participating in the, the third duel when he actually kills Hamilton. It makes a nice symmetry in the show, yeah. 
but it didn't happen in real life. Yes. Yeah. And Washington, like, uh, there's a, a really kind of a powerful scene. Hamilton has been asking for command in the Revolutionary War, and Washington won't give it to him because he's way more valuable as his secretary um, and writing letters and, and all that kind of stuff. And in the musical, Washington sends Hamilton home angry um, after, after the duel with Charles Lee and uh, with John Lawrence and Charles Lee. Uh, in in reality, Hamilton quit because he wasn't given command. He wasn't sent home for being like a a disrespectful son figure, uh, like he is in the musical, mm. which does yeah. change things. Um, but I think what's what's really great about that um, that sort of anger at being called son and being disrespected um, is it feels like that is um, respect is such a big part of hip hop. Earning respect and getting respect from people is such a big part of that culture that that story point really just fits better with Hamilton feeling disrespected. Yes, with it within the Hamilton or within the the framework of hip hop. So I, I think it works. Yeah, and even thinking about his pride too, like being called son, yeah, feel demeaning, of course. Um, so it makes that makes complete sense. Yeah, there's kind of this thing in uh, in the musical where. Hamilton looks like he's a more successful lawyer than Burr because after the war, they both became lawyers and settled into their careers. But actually Burr made a lot more money than Hamilton did because Hamilton charged less. He was, he was more advocating for people and for justice. Uh, But Burr was actually a more successful lawyer. It's kind of a interesting little tidbit. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, no, uh, you know, Hamilton wrote a great portion of the, the Federalist Papers, um, 51 of the Federalist Papers, there's a scene where Hamilton approaches Burr to ask him to help write this, to defend the Constitution, uh, to stand up for a strong uh, central government, like federal government. Um, and there, there's no evidence that Hamilton actually approached Burr to write any of the Federalist Papers. So, and I mean, then uh, I guess maybe I'll wrap it up with with this one, uh, Jefferson wasn't actually gone for all the war. Uh, he's he starts out Act Two with this great song, "What Did I Miss?" <laughs> it is so. It good. is really fun. <laughs> wearing wearing an outfit that looks like Prince. It's exactly. great. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great. Talking about uh, all the things he did in France and how important he is and stuff and how brilliant he is. <laughs> it's a it's a really fun song. Um, but uh, Jefferson actually didn't leave uh, until 1784, uh, so he was actually there for a good portion of the war. Again, you know, in they've got so much ground to cover, it kind of helps them to push characters into a, a, a I don't want to say a one-dimensional place, but to cut out some of the dimension of them to make make us understand who they were. Yeah. Jefferson did you know, having him look like he was gone the whole time kind of fits the narrative better than being like, oh well, he wasn't that important during the war. It also makes for a very good meta joke yeah. because David Diggs has been there the whole time. Oh, yes. I guess I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> so him coming in being like, what did I miss? It's like, you are very clearly the same actor. <laughs> That's like, it's a, there's just something really. Right. That to me, starting the second act like that to me was hilarious. Yeah. Purely because, I mean, we've, we've seen the guy for the last hour and a half. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, like, then you've got Jefferson, so who was supposedly in France during the whole war. And then you've got Lafayette, who is French, who's in the United right, States. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. Uh, there, Because there was a lyric that he says something. He, he directly says that he was in France or whatever. Men in France meeting lots of different ladies. Yeah. And then, yeah, him mentioning yeah. that too is like, this is... 
this is so clever. It uh, it is such fascinating writing. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. It's a lot of fun. I mean, and there are there are some really great historic moments that do happen in the show. One of the reasons that also fascinates me is that, like with my show, I've spent a fair bit of time talking about the founding fathers and who who were they because we often hold on to like the United States is a Christian nation, that idea. And, and one of the ways that we try to support that is that the founding fathers were Christians. Um, and that that's the argument anyway. Uh, but in reality, um, most of them were somewhere between Christianity and deism. Uh, this uh, deism is the idea that God set the world in motion and walked away. Uh, whereas Christianity is obviously that God is very much involved to the point where he sent his own son to die for our sins. The, the core eight founding fathers, um, you know, Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, Washington, Madison, Hamilton, Governor Morrison, uh, James Wilson, uh, all of them, while they were writing the foundational documents, actually starting the country, were neither Christian nor deist. They were in between. Mm. Um, they didn't believe that Jesus was God. Um, they, they would often believe that Christianity was a, um, a moral, good moral code, but it was not necessarily the way to God. Like, uh, like, John Adams didn't believe that um, Jesus was the only way to the Lord. So was it John Adams or one of the other guys that did the Bible where he made his own edits and then try? did he like either successfully or attempted to distribute it? Yeah, Which one was that? Yeah, it's Thomas Jefferson. Um, and you can still pick up copies. I think they now call it the Jefferson Bible. Um, and you can pick up a copy of it. And what what he did was he removed, he was not a big fan of the Old Testament, first of all, uh, but he would just cut out stuff he didn't like, like um, the miracles of, of Jesus. Um, he didn't like those. What he really enjoyed was the morality of, of Jesus, which, I mean, if you're founding a country, it can be very useful uh, because you do need your citizens to act in a moral way to each other. Right. That, that right. is just a foundational part of of building a country. But who who wouldn't like the first miracle of turning water into wine? I know. Everybody those guys. likes that one. Uh, especially those guys. <laughs> That's a great one. Well, what's what's cool <laughs> about the musical Hamilton um, is that further down the road after um, Hamilton's son has been killed in the duel, there's a great song called It's Quiet Uptown. Um, it's rather moving. It's, it's uh, about Hamilton and Eliza dealing with the loss of their son. And uh, Hamilton says, and I prayed, and that never used to happen before. And they uh, talk about going to church on Sundays. And, and in real life, Hamilton, uh, after that fact, became a believer. And he is the only one wow. of the, the original founding fathers who actually, of that core eight, who actually believed in Jesus. So it's it's kind of a, a beautiful thing for me as, as, a, as a Christian to see that moment. It's very subtle in the musical. It's it's an interesting thing to me because like um, with the we we tend to hold up the United States as a Christian nation as Christians we really want to believe it is and that the founding fathers were and a lot of that comes from them using in their public speeches references to the Bible like even uh, Washington in uh, in the musical quotes the Bible like the scripture says everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one will make them afraid and that's I think it's in one last time the song. He does that. And that's referencing Micah 4 and 1 Kings 4.25 and Zechariah 3.10. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of these guys were doing was that they had uh, a relationship with the Bible in that they liked to quote it, uh, but they weren't living it um, and they weren't believing it. Which sounds a lot like uh, Pharisees. Yeah. It's like exploiting scripture for... 
well, for in, what? In for good works, really. Yeah, in some ways, it's it's to build a, ju- a better society. Um, in other ways, it's to sound literate, um, like literary. Kind of like, I don't know if you knew this about Walt Disney, but the reason a lot of his writing and stuff was so old timey of which people didn't really talk like that much but he kind of did it just to sound literate that's funny it's a really good contrast to sort of the the work cult workplace culture which was very frat boy in early disney right that he would be sending out letters to his employees that sounded like something like only like an old money guy would write <laughs> so it's just like it's just really bizarre but continue go ahead. well i was gonna say the uh, the other example that i i think of a lot is stephen king you know he's a horror writer and uh, he references scripture in his books a lot. A lot. Yeah. And Pet Pet Cemetery reads like a story of somebody who is wrestling with sin and just never, never got past the whole Jesus part. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, you see it constantly in his books, but um, he is not a believer. Um, and I don't think you would ever call his books Christian, but because it's in there, it gives it a sort of depth because he's referencing something that we can kind of hold it in common as a society. Um, and so I think that that's, that's what a lot of those founding fathers were doing as they could see the depth that was there, but they didn't necessarily believe it themselves. And they knew it would be good for the country to reference those things. Um, but they didn't believe themselves And Churchill was the same way. He didn't believe that um, in Jesus, uh, but he would reference scripture as well. So I did, I definitely wanted to get into one particular topic uh, that's that's huge for this sure. and i know that anybody listening you're you're probably like what more can they talk about with this but also they're probably like keep talking about hamilton we love it that's the big thing right now so hopefully you're on the second half and we've kind of touched on this topic before already just kind of lightly briefly but i really want to dig into it here so lin-manuel miranda kind of seems to come from a position of hope with his work on Hamilton. In fact, the entire atmosphere around Hamilton, its cultural impact, how people have fallen in love with its music, its portrayal of history, so much of what makes Hamilton powerful for a lot of people is its hopeful portrayal and modern depiction of American history and the American idea, the experiment. For instance, Hamilton isn't just a historical narrative, it's a depiction of how certain people see history. In other words, it represents our day and age more so than the setting within the play. We just went over the historical accuracies and stuff like that. And it really does come down to how people, what's this, the narrative being said and stuff like that. So Hamilton, as it was created and exists today, feels like the passing of a baton. It looks like the ideals of the founding fathers and turns its gaze to our generation and says, you're next, grab the baton and start running. And something about that fascinates me because the last few years have shown another baton. We've seen the baton of evil that was rooted deeply in the founding fathers and the development of the United States because we're living in an age where things also have sin in them, and that includes countries. We see opportunism plaguing the private sector as capitalism shows its true colors. We see systematic oppressions that show that a country doesn't actually represent all of its people. Or as you expertly cover, Chris, in your podcast episode, Is the U.S. a Christian Nation, which you actually started to reference, I think, earlier, but which is fantastic, by the way. The United States only passively embracing the religious ideal for the sake of moralism. In other words, a common ground of moral understanding, not a devotion to any one particular belief system. And Hamilton seems to reignite a hope in the good baton. It directs the United States to look at what it wants to be while while somewhat deconstructing what it is currently. 
to that end, I think that's pretty dang neat. The more I learn about my generation, the overwhelming reality of modern living in the United States, that Zoomers and millennials are basically being given on a silver platter, something that's deteriorating faster than I can say, okay, boomer, is really depressing. But looking back to the aspirations of the founding fathers is encouraging, somewhat. But also I find it really sad because I've also seen online a fair amount of well-written and very important dissent against Hamilton about its ironically categorized whitewashed historical image. In its hope of directing a new generation to carry the good baton of the founding fathers into the new age, constantly developing and reforming the experiment we know as the US of A, we also kind of can't ignore that bad baton that I mentioned earlier. For instance, and people can read about this independently, but some criticism includes equating the historical romanticism of the founding fathers seen in Hamilton akin to films like The Patriot or American Sniper, which I think is a little bit of a stretch, but I yeah. can understand it. But basically, they're saying that it comes from an overtly nationalistic position, almost to a fault. The irony presented in most criticism of this kind of makes reference to the intentional casting that what we're seeing isn't a multicultural cast overcoming the failures of the bad baton, but co-opting it and giving it a new window dressing. To that end, more succinctly, it proposes that Hamilton is an ironic, if you can't beat him, join him mentality. There's a lot to pick apart here, Chris, and I, and I yes, know you're is. a big fan of this play, and some of what I'm proposing is a bit of a devil's advocate here. It's fine. So hopefully I'm not overwhelming you, but no. what are your thoughts on Hamilton as this cultural phenomena that both reignites a passion for the hopeful ideals of the United States, as well as the criticism against it with regards to its overt nationalism and occasional whitewashing rhetoric. What do you, what do you think about all that? I think in a, in a lot of ways, we can't ask any work of art to be perfect. I think that that, that is sort of a dangerous precedent for us to have. Um, because like, one of the things for me doing truce, I have been really afraid of doing a show about Black Lives Matter because I'm white. Um, and I don't have the words, I don't have the, the grounding for it. And, um, I'm afraid of getting picked apart. And honestly, I think that is something I should get over. We we're in, a, we're in an era now where we expect people to be so super righteous, perfect in every way, and also understand what people are going to think of us two, 300 years in the future when they have, when mores have changed, which is, is very difficult. We don't, we, uh, we have no control who lives, who dies, who tells our story, which is, you know, the reality of things. We don't know how we're going to be seen in the future. I mean, it could be 40, 50 years from now, our, our kids are like, you liked Hamilton. It's such a racist show, <laughs> but they won't know that in our time, Broadway is still very white. Um, you know, and that this show breaks a lot of ground. I mean, you look at something like Showboat. Um, which was, uh, gosh, I, want, I wish I looked up the dates. I want to say it came out in the 20s or 30s. It was, it's, it's been out for a long time. It was one of the first major American musicals that featured black characters of any kind doing much of anything at all. Um, and you look at it now and they seem sort of stereotypical, sort of like Gone with the Wind, you know, depictions of African-Americans. But in their time, in its time, Showboat was a phenomenon. Um, and it was uh, very culturally significant how it did it. Um, it. Unfortunately, I think part of our problem is that we we have a hard time understanding art in its time, and uh, and that's not to say we shouldn't strive to make things great. Um, but uh, uh, 
you have to accept things for how they are. There is no, there is no one piece of work of art. There is no one speaker who is going to be perfect all the time. And I think we get into trouble with this in the church. We have so many theological, our, our lists of theological requirements to go to a certain church are so long that the church has to be, you know, the preacher has to be pre-millennialist, Calvinist, <laughs> pro-Baptist, you know, anti-infant uh, baptism, but pro-infant uh, dedication. Um, there have to be, you know, so many songs, but there can't be any Hillsong songs or, you know, like we have to sing the doxology at the end of every Sunday. I've heard even can't have drums. I mean, right. That's kind of an older one, but yeah. that was one. And I mean, I understand we all have our little things and some of them are actually very important, but um, we go into every church assuming that if every church doesn't have things exactly like our last church did, um, then it is not doing the work of God. And I, I think we, we struggle with those, those things that are negotiable. You know, the Bible doesn't have really anything to say about whether or not you read out of a hymnal or if you read off of a screen. It really doesn't have anything to say about that. Uh, but we make a big stink out of those things. I, I say we want things to be absolutely perfect. And if they're not perfect, they're absolutely bad. And I don't think that that is particularly healthy. One of the things that gives me hope about Hamilton is that it does demonstrate to us out of what kind of struggle um, rose our constitution. And uh, what you see, if you read the constitution and you study, you see a document that is constantly being updated. Um, in order to make them uh, make up for previous injustices, so giving women the right to vote, for example, you know, wasn't in there until um, you know the what was it nineteen eighteen nineteen twenty somewhere in there. I really should know that, but um, <laughs> it, it took a long time for women to get the right to vote. But the the beauty of the thing is, it didn't take a revolution to do it. We didn't have to overthrow the whole country to do that. Uh, to to right the injustices, uh, the beauty of the of of the Constitution is that yes, it was made by flawed people, who were taking a lot of uh, pulling from a lot of different sources, but they ultimately came up with something that is flexible. Um, so when people are talking about revolution right now, and um, and I I have to say after studying revolutions, I've studied the French, and now the Russian, and now the and the American revolutions. You don't want an actual revolution. <laughs> no, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, we use that word very loosely. You don't want a war fought over something that we can just adapt to in our our founding document. Um, that's that's the beauty of the American system. As you know, as a guy who's spending a, a year talking about the American system, and maybe people think I'm anti-America. It is not true at all. The beauty of our system is that it can be changed and updated. Uh, and there is a great deal of hope in that. Um, and so that's that's where I take my hope from, that with all that's going on in 2020 and all the, the, the struggles that people are feeling, I feel like our system can take it um, and that we, we don't need a full-on, you know, guns and tanks revolution. What we need is just a change of, of heart and an updating and improving of our legal system as we learn how to do that. So I don't know. I uh, things like Hamilton give me a lot of hope uh, because they you see how they can bring up conversations. They can make us talk about some really interesting and fascinating things that we would Absolutely. not. I mean, who would have been talking about the founding fathers if it hadn't been for Hamilton right now? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. it's bringing up some really really good stuff, and it's it's lending a lot of depth to those conversations in the Black Lives Matter movement 
that I think is just crucial. So I'm, I'm super glad to have it in my life. And I'm glad that uh, it came out on Disney plus and people can access it for what is it? $7 a month. Um, yeah, it's a really yeah, good time for, for dirt that. cheap. Yeah. For uh, less than a 10th of the price. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I saw it in uh, Salt Lake city, I think I paid $120 uh, for my yeah, ticket. That's a lot. Um, but $7. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> That it that is deeply hopeful and deeply encouraging because I definitely fall into the the cynic camp when it comes to the current age we live in. Yeah. That's not to say that I don't think the Lord can fix things, but yeah. oftentimes it's easy to think that the Lord will fix things with with wrath. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, and sometimes uh, he does. And that's yeah. that's very convicting because the Lord is far more clever than I am and he oh, can yeah. fix things however he wants. And so that that is hopeful and encouraging. I think if, if you need something that gives you hope uh, in a time of revolution, um, learn more about the women's rights uh, movement, the suffrage movement. And uh, I actually did two episodes on truce in season two about it. Um, but you there's study about people like Carrie Nation and, and their roles in fighting because they did go to some really great lengths to try to, to get what, what they deserved, which is the right to vote. Um, but they didn't burn the country down in the process. They were just faithful and they... They fought and they fought well, uh, but they yeah. they didn't have to resort to becoming what they disliked. Amen to that. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a great it's a great study. If you can, especially the the women's Christian temperance movement is an interesting study and in how they achieved what they wanted to get. Well, this, this is this has been an uh, absolutely amazing episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. <laughs> I just really want time. you to know that yeah. I I I thought this was a lot of fun yeah. and I. Pretty much, I had the fear at first of like, I know nothing about Hamilton. This isn't going to go well, and yeah. that's okay. But then, like after reading and putting out notes, you get that immediate confidence boost where you're like, yeah. "Well, if I fail somewhere, I know Chris will handle it." So then, and then we hear you recording it, and the Lord's the Lord's like, "You know what? Both of you are going to be on point." So it's been thanks, a lot of fun. God. That's really oh, sweet. Yeah. I, I've had a blast here, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. So why don't why don't you tell everybody where you're at again and and uh, how they can get connected, check out anything you've worked on, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, again, there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, the novel is Cradle Robber. You can find it anywhere you get eBooks. Um, it's not on paper yet. Uh, if somebody owns a major publishing house and wants to contact me, please do. Uh, <laughs> you can find uh, Bringing Up Bobby, which is our comedy film I mentioned with the Goth Kids. Um, it's on Pure Flix and on Amazon Prime. So if you've got an Amazon Prime subscription, you can get it for the cost of your subscription hey and um you can also you can find uh, truce just about anywhere you get podcasts I, I tend to recommend start with season three because i've gotten so much better as time has gone on i really love season two i had a lot of good stuff to say in season one but it wasn't my best uh so start with season three um and uh, i would love to hear from you and so if you want to contact me but you can find me on social media facebook twitter instagram at at truce podcast Thanks so much for listening to our episode on Hamilton. And thanks so much, Chris Starin, for joining us here on the Cinematic Doctrine podcast. Be sure to check out his podcast, Truce, the award-winning Christian podcast that looks at history to deep dive into the Christian church. Using interviews with experts, music, games, and recipes, Truce uncovers the things that glom onto the Christian church so that we can protect our witness to the world. It's all about how we got here and how we can do better. Now, if you've seen Hamilton, what did you think of it? Did this pop culture phenomena blow you away, or are you tired of these songs and ready to move on? 
If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let us know in the comments below or shoot us an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review for the podcast on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. Unlike YouTube or Reddit, there isn't really a way to let us know how we're doing with a thumbs up or thumbs down. So the best way is to leave your thoughts on the podcast by writing a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever you listen. And as mentioned before, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you're opted into a once a month movie poll where you decide a movie we discuss on the podcast. You also gain access to the Sindoc Pre-Show, a Patreon-exclusive podcast series where my co-host Daniel and I casually talk movies, Christianity, and life itself. There are other unique benefits that come with supporting the podcast, so be sure to check them out at patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine. A special shout out to those who support at the Art House Theater tier on Patreon. Thank you so much, Mom, Dad, and Melanie. You guys are the best, and your continued monetary support is greatly appreciated. All of this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck! We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.